I mean, what's so tragic is governments are saying, well, we don't think we should determine the value of your pension. We don't think that we're any good at building railway lines. We don't think that we're the best people to provide housing or health to the people. We think the market should do that. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. Today, we're talking with Anne Pettifor. She's an author of multiple books. She's also an economic advisor to multiple countries and organizations. And today, we have a really cool conversation where we talk about what is money. And then we extrapolate that into what is a monetary system. And then looking at today and asking why are people so frustrated and how might that be coming from the monetary system? I hope you enjoy. And thanks so much for joining. Hello, Bradford. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good to have you on. So we're um, flying at each other from uh, across an ocean and a continent we just figured out. You're in London currently, I believe. I'm actually in Suffolk, in, in the east of the UK, uh, near the oh, coast. okay. So even All further right. away from you. <laughs> oh, no. Well, so before jumping in, um, maybe give us a little rundown of just what makes Anne Anne and a bit of your background just generally or related to economics. I'll just kind of give that to you. Right. Well, thank you very much. Um, of course, we all like talking about ourselves. <laughs> Um, I, grew, I grew up in I grew up in a remote bit of South Africa, the Orange Free State, uh, where gold was discovered in 1946. I think it was. I was born in 1947, and my parents, post-war, there was a depression in South Africa, and my parents went charged off to to the gold fields in the hope of uh, of getting a job. Essentially. Oh wow! Um, and so I grew up in this town, and it was a, it was a bit of the Wild West, really, in South African terms, because um, people had flocked there because of the gold and so on. Um, but I was always puzzled by the fact that the price of gold uh, was fixed and had been fixed since 1933, as it, as it turned out later by President Roosevelt, and it wasn't changed until 1973, whereas all the other prices in our town we're changing, um, you know, we're going up yeah. and down and so on. And I remember having these discussions with my dad about why the gold price was so fixed. And my dad hadn't been educated. He'd left school before he was due to in order to join the the Air Force and go to war, basically. And so he, he had limited education, but he read the newspapers a lot. And we both struggled to understand. But from that became my interest in the international system. I began to understand, even at that very youthful age, that the international system has an impact on a little town like Woodendorthris or later Velcombe, which is where I, I grew up. And then I went yeah. to university. I was terribly, I mean, I, I was growing up under white, a system of white supremacy. I was very unhappy. I was quite a devout Christian and had been told to love my neighbour as myself, and I found that nobody was loving their neighbours as themselves, not even Christians and people in, in the churches. Churches were segregated in South Africa, of course. And rather than end up on Robben Island, I was involved in student politics and anti-apartheid uh, politics. I decided to leave the country, and I came to England in uh, 1968. Um 
And and then after that, I went back to Africa, got very homesick for Africa and, and spent time in, in Tanzania under President Nyerere, as he was then. So um, so I've always had a, an interest in the inter- – I've always seen the world in these terms because, you know, I had uh-huh. I was fortunate enough to have that perspective. Um, and then late in life, I was asked to lead the Jubilee 2000 campaign for the cancellation of the debts of the poorest countries. And I tried to understand why these countries had got into so much debt after the 1970s, whereas before the 1970s, they didn't have enormous quantities of uh, of foreign sovereign debt. Hmm. And nobody could really explain it. They all explained it in terms of what the oil crisis of 1973. And that didn't make sense to me. So I spent sort of three years at the New Economics Foundation and edited a book and then wrote another book um, called the real uh, the real world economic outlook in 19 uh, in 2003 but in 2006 i began to feel that you know if the the poor countries the low income countries had debt problems when i looked up at what the anglo american economies had in terms of debt i thought my god this is not sustainable this is going to fall down and so i wrote <laughs> a book which the publisher called the coming first world debt crisis and I was opposed to it because I didn't like first world, second world. I didn't didn't like that treatment of of the people of the world. And but secondly, I said, look, it's going to be published in September two thousand and six, and by that time the crisis will have come, and my book will be be out of date. I said, but I was <laughs> wrong. I was wrong on the timing, and timing the crisis is how you make money. Timing it correctly. So I didn't make much money out of it. But after that, I got a reputation as being one of the few people who had predicted the crisis when I was just about ready to retire. And then suddenly I found myself being asked to comment on all sorts of things. And then in 2008, I joined a group of environmentalists and macroeconomists, and we drafted a report called the Green New Deal. And Mm -hmm. this later um, morphed into AOC's Green New Deal. And... um, and and that's preoccupied me since then. So that's my story. In-, in a nutshell, yeah. Well, there's hours to discuss there, and hopefully we can dive into a few sections with a little more detail. Um, yep. But before we do, I'd love to back up a little bit and walk through just the basis of money. And so I, I guess I'll frame that first question at you of what is money? Because ah, well, it's around us every moment of every day. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so the thing is, this is such an important question, Bradford, and I'm glad you're asking it. And the world is divided into two understandings of money. And the, hmm. the, these two different interpretations or explanations have real world consequences. So let me, let me just tell you briefly. I believe, and I don't believe I know, um, that money is nothing more than a social construct. It's something that we evolved mm. as human civilization over time, beginning with the Florentines, the Italians, the Dutch, and then the, the British. Um, we worked out this system whereby we could undertake transactions with each other uh, without involving barter. You know, we could make promises to mm-hmm. each other to pay for something, and that would enable us to undertake activity. Um, so for me, money is nothing more than a promise to pay. When I wave my debit card at a machine, all I'm doing is telling the machine that I promise uh, 
that the money is going to be transferred from my bank account into his bank, her bank, in his or her banking bank account, and my bank is going to help make that process happen, and mm-hmm. my card is backed up by my bank, but also by the institution, the central bank, which determines the value of my currency, and by the treasury. Um, and, and the criminal justice system that enforces contracts. So when I make a promise to pay, that I, that I uphold that promise to pay. Now, the thing is, because it's just a social construct, it's almost effortless activity. You can make promises hmm. to pay wherever you want, right? And the question becomes, how do you uphold that promise, you know? And uh, David Graeber, who's a wonderful anthropologist, wrote a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And he argues that back in the day, 5,000 years ago, people had what we call credit system. Credo means I believe, I believe you'll pay. And um, that meant, if you think of a village, that, uh, you know, I would promise to cut your hair if you would promise to thatch my cottage, right? Or And we'd have mm-hmm. a transaction like that, promises. And then the chief of the village would keep an eye and make sure that after I'd cut your hair, when you already had the advantage of my work, you fulfilled your promise and thatched my cottage, right? So there were systems already for upholding promises, according to the anthropologists 5,000 years ago. And it was only when the villagers had to deal with strangers where they couldn't uphold the promises that hmm. barter became an issue, that, that, that they said, well, you'll give you... Uh, we'll give you cash, but in exchange for, or we'll give you uh, ivory or whatever it is we have, or a chicken, but in exchange for something that you give us that we think is of equal value. But Mm -hmm. barter wasn't the basis of human civilization. Credit was the promise to pay. And if you think about it, you know, in the village, the chief would also be ensuring that a pint of beer was a pint of beer, not a half a pint of beer, or that a yard of cloth yeah. was a yard of cloth and not a half a yard of cloth. So you always had institutions, which is called regulation, for upholding promises. So that's the credit-based system. And, and on that basis, uh, our financial system today is based. But most orthodox economists and most very important prominent economists, I'm thinking about people like Milton Friedman, don't believe mm-hmm. that that's the system. They believe, and I'm, and I'm thinking about all those people involved in, in cryptocurrencies. They believe that money is an exchange between this asset and some cash, right? That I will give you liquidity in exchange for, for a commodity, for some collateral. And so this is the idea of the commodity-based definition of money, not the Mm. credit-based definition of money. Now, what's really bizarre is that those who believe in the commodity-based system believe that money originates with the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve spews out all this credit and we exchange it for collateral, right? This is what Milton Friedman argued. And Milton Friedman was, as you know, probably the most famous economist in the United States in in his time and the most respected, and he still is. But in fact, um, our whole financial system is not based on collateral. It's based on, I promise to pay, on credit. Now, the thing about, as I've said, the thing about credit is that you've got to uphold that promise to pay. You've got to have behind it 
you know, a bank, you've got to have behind it, above all, a criminal justice and a legal system that, that enforces a contract. So when I go into the coffee shop and wave my little card, you know, I could be yeah. committing fraud. And if I am committing fraud, there's someone who's going to chase me up and get, my, get the money out of me to give to the coffee shop. But the people who subscribe to the commodity-based theory of money believe that it's really wrong to have regulation of, <laughs> of money. And so we have today, and, and I'm fast-forwarding here, we have a global mm -hmm. financial system, which according to the Financial Stability Board, which was set up after 2007-9, to keep an eye on the global financial system to help prevent another crisis, um, they calculate that there's $404 trillion of financial assets out in the stratosphere, right? Now, that's a hell of a... I mean, it's beyond our imagination. When you think about yeah. the fact that real income in the global economy, as measured by the World Bank and the IMF, is only $87 trillion. Wow, $404 trillion. Now, what that is, is money or that which claims to be money floating around in what is called the shadow banking system. Now, when we had the financial crisis of 2007-09, the problem quite often was with Wall Street banks and with financial institutions. Today, banks have been heavily regulated. They're not the problem anymore, but out beyond the reach of society's regulatory democracy, if you like, you know, the ability to regulate, to manage, to uphold promises, is a shadow banking system. And that's a system that, that's called globalization, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that what, they, <clears throat> what the people who work in those capital markets like most about it is that there is no law enforcement. There is no regulation, effectively. Of course, I exaggerate. There is some kinds of regulation that they have to adhere to. But on the whole, the whole design of the shadow banking system is to be beyond regulation. So now the way why this matters is this. We've privatized, for example, Americans have privatized their pensions largely. And these are now managed by something called asset management funds. And you may have heard of BlackRock and Blackstone and so on. And they're out there in the shadow banking system. BlackRock manages $9 trillion of assets, which is more than than, than the U.S.'s global income, right? Um, and yeah. and if, you, if you can think of it, what they're doing is they're sitting on our savings or on American savings, which is flowing up into these, um, into these asset management funds. So they've got a lot of cash, right? Then there are corporations and companies that want to get their hands on some cash or liquidity because they want to invest or speculate or do whatever. But in order to get hold of some of this pension cash, they have to offer something called collateral. They have to offer a commodity, something pretty solid uh, that they can swap for cash, essentially, because this is a commodity-based system of money. And... Um, and so we find that um, the collateral that they look for is government bonds, which is regarded, U.S. Treasury bills are regarded as the safest collateral in the world. But people have other assets as well. They might own a London property or they might, might own a work of art <coughs> by Van Gogh or they might own a care home, which is regularly paying rent to them, 
or they might mm -hmm. own a racehorse, right? These are all collateral. And what happens is when they want cash, they say, look, I've got this collateral, I've got this racehorse, and it's really valuable. It's a good old racehorse, and it's winning races. Um, and, and, you know, if I don't pay you back again, you can have this racehorse, basically. And, with, and they swap and do the collateral story. So, but that's crazy because... Um, we know uh, the great financial crisis of 2007-9 was caused not by a run on the banks, not because there wasn't enough cash in the banks. It was caused because people didn't trust the valuation of this collateral, right? So you said, oh, I've got a, uh, I've got a, I own a subprime property. And that's what happened in 2007-9. I own, I own the bonds on a range of subprime properties. And, you know, this is what I've got. Please give me some cash. And then one day somebody said, but are you sure those subprimers are going to pay their mortgages? And that really is worth what you say it is, basically. And they said, well, I don't think it is. It's worth half of that. Wow, I've borrowed all this, le I've leveraged and borrowed all this money against it. So what I'm trying to show you is that the credit base of money means we just now create an awful lot of credit which is not properly regulated i promise to pay because it's so easy you know it's a simple thing mm -hmm. you know. equally we have a commodity based system which is not stable because it relies for collateral on assets whose valuation is a human valuation and when those valuations change and they can change because the racehorse dies or Van Gogh becomes unfashionable or Manchester United loses football matches or uh, a government bond is falls in value, then there's a lot of trouble, basically, because money has been borrowed against it. Now, I hope that wasn't too much too quickly, Bradford. No, that was fabulous. And so it, it sounds like you're essentially merging these two schools of thought in a way of saying ultimately we've we've got a credit based system and so we can just m create this credit and prop up these asset prices and and prices the collateral but then we're operating under this collateral based system yeah. that's inflated by this credit creation and so it's just it's inherently unstable is that is that what i'm gathering precisely you got it fantastic yeah no absolutely and, and it, it's encapsulated in the cryptocurrency world basically mm -hmm. in the cryptocurrency world you're told give me some cash and i'll give you i'll mine something called a, a bitcoin and i promise you there's only 72 million bitcoins in the world so it's a finite asset and its value just increases because more and more people want to get hold of these finite assets and, and so you assume that they, they're not telling you lies, that there are only 72 million bitcoins or whatever it is, uh, whichever cryptocurrency is, and you're swapping it, you, you're buying it for cash, basically. And that's because bitcoin is based on the commodity theory of money. So we've got that as well. But people are taking out credit in order to buy this commodity, Um and that's, you know, turning it in. And so when you have, and this is, explains property prices, when you have a finite asset and you throw a lot of money at it, a wall of money aimed at property or at cryptocurrencies, the value of it rises. And when that money decides, oh, dear, we're not sure it's really worth that much, woof, you get a crash. And that's what happened in 2007-9. And that's what happened in March 2020 as well. But let's not go there. Yeah. And so what about central banks? Why were they created and what purpose do they serve in this system? 
So central banks are incredibly important because they were created essentially, uh, especially here in Britain, to help pre- pre- finance, to help the state raise the finance it needed to go to war, essentially, mm-hmm. or to, you know, to deal with the, the threat of, of neighbours threatening to invade and so on. And, and individual, the private sector, individual rich land, landlords in Britain and bankers and so on were lending to the king, but um, they, weren't t- <laughs> they weren't entirely confident that the king was going to pay them back again. And so they wouldn't lend. And so the, the nation would be in a crisis, the French threat or the Spanish threatening to invade, for example, and, and how, how was the state to respond to that? And so the bankers said, oh, look, we've got an idea. Well, let's set up a central bank and let's uh, make the king promise that all the taxes that he collects, and it was invariably a he or she collects, can be used to repay us when we lend money, mm-hmm. basically, to the state. And so this began the system of the state having its own bank which, uh, which did two things. First of all, it valued the currency. It determined the value of the currency. And the value of the currency was dependent on the ability of the king to collect tax revenues. And if he had, it's like collecting rent, basically. The king was collecting rent every year from his citizens. And, that, and the more rent he collected and the more citizens he had and the more faithful they were about paying their taxes, the higher the value of the currency, Right. And so the, the bank, central bank did that, um, but it helped facilitate the financing of the state in, in emergencies. And then it began to be used, of course, for additional purposes, you know, for building infrastructure and so on. And central banks are terribly important. I need you to be very clear about the fact that they are state institutions. They're not private. None of them are private. They may, And they're not independent, despite all the talk. We've seen that that the governor of the Federal Reserve, for example, is appointed by a politician, and it's a political appointment. Mr. Trump had a very different view um, of uh, what the central bank should be doing from from Mr. Biden. Um, And here in Britain, we got a a new central bank governor when we got a new government. Um, And the people who work in central banks are all on the government's payroll. They 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 are civil servants. So we have to keep some distance between politicians and central banks because the central banks hold hard currency that comes into the country um, for the purposes of exchanging it into the domestic currency. And I've worked in Africa where central banks, you know, have often been uh, regularly, if you like, um, infiltrated by politicians who want to get their hands on some hard currency to buy a jet or a, a house in the south of France or whatever. So so there are risks in in politicising central banks, but we need to still remember they are all civil servants and they're all part of the state. And today when we think of central banks, we think of money printer go burr, these types of memes, basically quantitative easing and money printing. That's yeah. That is definitely a, a strong connection with just the general consciousness at this point when we think of central banks. How yeah. how does that fit in, the printing well, of the money? Well, this is Milton Friedman's fault because the, the central bank does not print money. And if there's one thing we can achieve in this session, I hope it is to dispel the idea that they print money. Um, Great. The thing that we need to remember is that actually we create the money. And I know this seems hard to um, – 
to absorb because we, we, we're so, the, the propaganda of printing money is so pervasive. We don't understand this. But, but when, but we create the money every time we apply for a loan, right? So there is no money in your high street bank when you apply for a mortgage of, I don't know, a million dollars to buy a small house in a big city, right? Because that's what it's costing these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's no, there isn't a million dollars in the vaults of the bank. What there is is a contract, a lawyer, a banker, and they're asking you whether you promise to repay your mortgage over the next 25 or 30 years. And you fill a form saying, yes, I will. I will use it from my future income to repay this a million dollars, right? And when you do that, the, the bank enters some numbers into a computer and transfers those numbers to your bank account. And you they're not printing money. Um you don't see, um, nowadays, you never even see the notes, basically. Um, they appear on your statement, your bank statement. Suddenly, boom, there's a million dollars in the bank. And you use that to buy the house. And then, in, then you repay the money over time, right? That's how all money is created. Similarly, with the central bank. Now, uh, we do that at a micro level. I call it the micro level. The high street bank is, you know, mm -hmm. we'll go and create money. So most of the money supply, and I want you to be very clear about this, the money supply is created by you and me. Now, when we're feeling depressed, when we don't want to spend a million dollars on a flat, we'd rather sleep out in the cold because we don't have a million dollars, but also we really are fearful of we'll never be able to repay that. Um. When we don't want to take risks as a business, we don't want to invest and improve the business because we think, ooh, things are looking bad out there, we contract the money supply. We don't borrow. When we're feeling, mm -hmm. wow, conditions are really good, I'm feeling confident, I know I can make a lot of money, I go to the bank and I borrow some money, I invest in the business, I expand the business, I employ more people, I produce more widgets, I sell more widgets, and more income comes into my account, right? That's how they say. So we contract and expand and contract the money supply. Uh, then there's the central bank. Now, the central bank has clients as well, but they're not me and you, and they shouldn't be in my view. And that's another question coming up later. Their clients are the banks or big pension funds, big financial institutions. Mm -hmm. So I've got, I don't know, I might be lucky enough to have £15,000 to put in the bank. But a pension fund has probably got, I don't know, £300,000 and can't put them in the bank because that's not a secure place to do it. So the pension fund will deal instead with the central bank. So the central bank has its, its own clients. And again, the whole promise to pay process comes into effect, essentially. But the central bank does say, as, as the bank says to me, look, she says, look, um, you say you're promising to pay. I don't fully trust you. Can I please have some collateral to back that up? And you say, yes, well, you can have my house. If I don't pay the mortgage, you can have the house, right? So you do offer mm -hmm. collateral. In exactly the same way, the central bank expects pension funds and other banks who need new liquidity to uh, offer collateral. Now, what the central bank does is to help the banks deal with the daily comings and goings in and out of, of oh, high street banks. And that's quite tricky to do because 
I might promise to pay. I'm, you know, a million dollars goes out of the bank into my account. Uh, and then the bank has to wait until they earn that back again. And what the central bank does is help to clear the transactions that take place every day between the banks to help keep them stable. In other words, it's, they give them overdrafts, essentially, um, to say, we know you've made you've made a lot of mortgages this week and you're waiting for the income to come in, so here's a bit of overdraft to see you through the period. So that's how, how the system works. It doesn't work by printing money. The central bank, you know, you we know now <laughs> nobody's using printed money anymore. Nobody's using coins anymore. We're all using this little card thing. And um, basically, the the printed money used to be it used to have written onto it. I promise to pay. I haven't got a copy of my ten pound note here today, but on it it says I promise to pay, and the dollar bill says I promise to pay. So the the printed money was always just an indication of. Uh, the promise to pay, just as my debit card and my credit card. You know, there is no money in my my bank account, my credit card bank account, when I want to buy a washing machine. It's not as if I'm transferring money out of my bank account to the to the to the shop, because there isn't. There's credit. There's a credo, promise to pay, and so I show my credit card, and and with time, I off I pay for my washing machine. So um. So there's never been money printing and, and no printing, money printing happens. What happens is promises to pay and those are backed up by contracts and by collateral for the central bank as well as for the high street bank. Mm-hmm. And how is the act of money creation related to taxation? Because it seems like there's some relationships there. Yeah, so taxation is terribly important. Um now, the thing about taxation, we think taxes pay for the government spending, but in fact, it works the other way around. Now, the taxes are important because when you go back, you think about the king and setting up the central bank in the first place. The whole point of setting up the central bank was to ensure that there would be future revenues to pay for current expenditure on a war with Spain, say, Right. And that mm -hmm. meant you had to have a taxation system. Now, of course, that had to be developed. Um, and the, the story of the evolution of taxation is fascinating, not just here, but in France and so on. But the point about a taxation system is that the government takes out a mortgage, gets credit from the central bank, say, uh, and it, or issues a bond. That's what they do. It's... It, same as a mortgage, I issue a bond, promise to pay, right? So the mm. central bank might finance part of that bond, but the private, you know, the pension funds might also buy the bond and say, oh, yeah, I'd like to have that. And in the future, for the next 30 years, government of Britain, I'm going to be collecting rent from you on that bond, interest. Um, fine. So now I've issued my bond and I've, ca I've got cash uh, to the value of £300 million pounds, and I'm now going to invest it in building, uh, I don't know, a railway line, for example, right? Now, the point about that is that the government spends that money. And if the government spends that money, in particular on investment and employment, that generates income. It generates income for the people who are employed, for the 
mm-hmm. private companies that make profits from building the railway line, for helping the contractors that help to build the railway line. The people employed make income, but the government collects tax revenues from that investment, from that spending, and that money comes back to pay for the original borrowing. So tax revenues are a consequence of spending. They're not the financing of spending. They happen after the government has spent. And if you think about it, it's it, it's logical. You know, it's like when you spend on a mortgage, um, you might buy a house and you might improve the house and put in a new bathroom and, and so on and then sell it and you get income from that investment. Well, exactly in exactly the same way, the government's spending generates tax revenues, which helps to balance the mm-hmm. books, if you like. And I'm not one of those who, you said Milton Friedman argued that the government just printed money and then spent it recklessly <laughs> without paying for it because they didn't have taxes. In, they didn't have savings in the bank when they spent the money. Well, they were never intended to have savings in the bank. to spend. They didn't, we never intended for the bank to have Mrs. Jones's savings so that Mrs. Smith could take out a mortgage. That's never been the case. Mrs. Smith takes mm. out a mortgage, which is a promise to pay, a bond. And without having... And that's not financed by Mrs. Jones's savings. Mrs. Jones's savings are a consequence of Mrs. Smith spending that money on her house, uh, buying a house and improving the house, and then, um, you know, going out and buying curtains for the house from Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith makes a profit out of selling the curtains, and those are her savings. Right? And those may go into the bank because she may want to keep them there for safekeeping, but the bank doesn't use those savings to make the mortgage in the first place. And similarly with the central bank. The central bank doesn't wait for the government to collect tax revenues before it spends. It gives the mm-hmm. cash, the credit, the government spends, and then that generates tax revenues, which helps to pay for the, for the bond. And, and that's, So I'm in favour. I don't think the books should be absolutely balanced because... In a crisis, when there's a big hole in the economy, when there's inactivity, there's a slump, there's depression, the government has to step up and invest in railways, invest in whatever, wind farms, uh, you know, solar, blah, create jobs and get the economy going again and, and has to do that probably with a big overdraft, but then must ensure that there's enough employment to generate income to pay for that overdraft or for that bond. Does it make sense? Yes. And in a time where central banks seem to be funding more and more of their government's bonds, is is that a worry that we're transitioning from this time of taking on lots of debt as a sovereign to spur the economy and eventually have them paid off to just kind of slowly forgetting about that second step? See, the thing is, I'm very grateful that the central bank is helping to fund the government in a crisis. You have a pandemic, you close down the whole of your economy. You send everybody back home. Pretty big, pretty big move. This this is a big hole in the economy, right? And, And Mr. BlackRock can't help to fix it. You know, the private sector can't fix this because the private sector is all locked up, you know, behind a virus. So what, you know, I'm really grateful for the fact that the government intervenes, pays people's salaries, keeps the show on the road, 
And then when the virus is passed, helps to revive the economy so we can get going again. And it can collect taxes to pay off that original risk taking of it. Um, so, but what is wrong about the way things are functioning at the moment is that the economy is so weak globally, is so unbalanced. Um, and increasingly, the central banks are not just looking after the state, they're looking after the private sector. The private sector is, and Wall Street in particular, and by Wall Street, I mean the city of London, Frankfurt, and, and all those financiers, the financial sector, is the major beneficiary of QE, of the government, of the, 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 what, what central banks are doing. They're not printing money. They're taking collateral onto their balance sheets in exchange for liquidity or cash, right? Think of it as, as you would think of the bank giving you an overdraft, right? It gives you the capacity to spend, but it's not cash. You know, when, when the, the bank gives you an overdraft, that, he's not giving you money as such, but he's giving you the, the capacity to spend. And in, in that same way, the central bank is giving Wall Street the capacity to spend crazy money, basically, and Wall Street can't believe their luck. And they're doing that because they feel, by they believe, and I, and I we can argue about this, this is a big argument about what, whether or not Wall Street deserves all that, but they believe they by doing that they are keeping the economy afloat essentially because if you, if the banks go down you know it's like if if our if our um, sanitation system were to collapse you know <laughs> you'd the government you'd want the government to fix things and the central bank thinks yeah, quickly. it's I actually think the central banks have gone too far I don't think I think the central banks allowed the deregulation of Wall Street of the finance sector. They encouraged it. They believe it's the right way to go. And now they are bailing out that stupidly self-regulating system, which is making reckless speculative investments. So speculation is just another word for gambling. And those guys are gambling like crazy on Bitcoin, on cryptocurrencies, on property prices, on racehorses, you name it. And the central banks are bailing them out when they when they get when their collateral doesn't quite equal the, the the money they've borrowed, and that's a problem. Yeah, it seems like a world in which a certain segment can only win, and then another segment not so much. And it, it sounds like a lot like privatized gains and socialized losses. It's that and precisely. Yeah. What's yeah? It's what's interesting is those in power who've helped construct this paradigm of yeah. privatized gains and socialized losses, we can't vote in or out of office. No. They just have that power. And it seems quite odd in uh, self-proclaimed democracies. W yeah. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are you're absolutely right, Bradford, that you know the, the capital markets hate democracy. And they hate it so much they've organized for themselves to be detached from uh, the, the regulation of a government and of states. It's a kind of anti-government, anti-state position, really. So by being in the shadow banking system, operating at a globalized level beyond the reach of regulatory democracy, they are saying we don't respect democracy. And... and um, and as, a, as such, they, they, and governments are saying, well, look, um, I mean, what's so tragic is governments are saying, 
well, we don't think we should determine the value of your pension. We don't think that we're any good at building railway lines. We don't think that we're the best people to provide housing or health to the people. We think the market should do that. The market should provide all of these things. And markets, by the way, you know, they're so intelligent. They know how to allocate resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we're governed by markets. But nobody votes for those markets. Nobody can sack the market. And the thing that worries me, you're so right about the imbalances. There's a report out this week that shows that the top 10% of um, the population in the United States now controls 76% of the wealth, and the bottom 50% uh, now control only 2% of wealth. Now, wealth is different from income. Income, you know, the rich don't have incomes. They don't do work and wait for wages or salaries at the end of the month. They have assets from which they collect rent, property. Think of property. You know, I sit on my butt and I collect the rent from my property every month. That's wealth, basically, because I own a property. And and they the the rich own the top ten percent own seventy six percent of the nation's wealth. Now the problem with that is that the bottom fifty percent are getting mad as hell about that situation, and quite rightly so. They're saying this ain't fair, and I feel I'm being ripped off. And the government is saying, sorry, nothing to do with me, Gov. This is up to markets, right? And then the people are saying, well, if it's not up to you then please find me a strong man, and it's invariably a man, who's going to protect me, who's going to make sure that I do get housing, that I do get decent health, and that I do uh, I do have help with these opioids, that, that my kids do go to university, right? And that strong man is going to build a wall with Mexico and he's going to he's going to and he's going to take on china and look after my interests so what we have is a result of this massive imbalances between the rich and the, and the rest of us is that this leads to anti-democratic uh behavior and disillusionment with democracy and the rise of right-wing authoritarianism and even if i may say so the threat of fascism we saw that happened in the 1930s basically and that's why I like the, the the New Deal so much, because Roosevelt had exactly the same problems we have today. He had a deregulated Wall Street that had caused this huge 29 crash. He had people, millions of people unemployed who we were really angry and had joined. America first came from uh, William Ra Ra Randolph, William Hearst, or was it William Randolph Hearst? The owner of all the, of those American media who invented the term and who uh, was a fan of Hitler's. And so, so Roosevelt faced the threat of authoritarianism and the rise of fascism inside the United States. And he also faced an ecological crisis, which was the Dust Bowl. And what he did was he, he said, OK, no longer will we be governed by markets and by Wall Street. Well, I'm moving the gold and, and the power over our exchange rate, our interest rates and so on, from Wall Street and to the Treasury, which is a democratically run institution. And that saved democracy in the United States. In Europe, the opposite happened, and we ended up with fascism. So um, that's why Roosevelt is such an inspiration at this point. I'd love to dive in that a little more in a moment, but what, what you're mentioning about these dynamics with um, the market dictating 
our economic system and yeah. how wealth is distributed. And in a, in, a, in a way that we have very little say, it sounds, so I'm just thinking back to your explanation at the beginning of our conversation about monetary systems in general and how trust seems like an incredible, it's just, it's the lynch point of the entire thing. And what I'm hearing you describe is we're, we're almost writing IOUs on trust. We're not giving trust right now. We're saying, I will like, you can trust me later to pay this back. Like we're, we're essentially eating away at a foundation mm -hmm. of trust. Yeah. And am I, am I kind of out to lunch here or are you able to dive into that um, dynamic a little bit more of deeper? Like how does trust work in the situation? Oh, it's so important. And, you know, this is why I, I mean, I was a devout Christian in my youth and I, I'm a little more skeptical these days that the churches are playing their uh -huh. proper role. But the question of values and, you know, the, the regulatory system, the legal system, the criminal justice system depends on thou shalt not steal, you know, thou shalt this do that, blah. These are important values, um, and we've allowed those values to be eroded. And so you, you're absolutely right, Bradford. We're losing trust. We lose trust in each other. We're losing trust in politicians. We're becoming really cynical. Um, and, and we've right to do so because we're feeling insecure. You know, there was a time when I... I was pretty sure that I'd be able to get a job or my children would be able to get a job. Now, look, we're now very insecure. And if my children do get a job with Deliveroo or Uber or whatever, it's a very insecure job at very low income. And I can't be sure I'm going to be able to have some, to find a roof over my head if I'm a young person. I've got to live with my parents for 20, 30 years, you know. So so that, all of that is is eroding trust in the system. And... And that's, as I say, that leads to, well, where, who do I trust? And somebody comes along and says, you can trust me. You know, my, name, my name's Donald Trump. <laughs> you can trust me. Or my name's uh, Boris Johnson. Or my name is um, Modi, President Modi in India, you know. And people are desperately turning to these strong men on the grounds that this might be someone they could trust. And, of course, they can't trust them. So... So it's really, it's a very worrying time in our history, in my view. But you're completely right. It's these values that matter. And I want to see faith organizations standing up and demanding that politicians uphold these values and, and promote these values instead of so much time is wasted as to whether or not, I don't know, um, I don't know, somehow or other. And maybe, the, you know, these churches and these institutions that used to uphold our values, which are now clashing with each other, you know, Muslims and Christians and Jews and Catholics and and Protestants, you know, now they're engaged in all these fights when actually what they should be doing is playing this vital role in society of saying, look, these are these are the important values. These because all of them have very good values, you know. All of them are based on sound um values that humanity has developed over time and and it seems to me they're wasting that valuable contribution they make towards societies in internecine clashes between religions and so on so uh, 
So how do you know who restores those values and in particular who helps to rebuild trust? That's that's the question that I think faces our leaders and our politicians, including our faith leaders and our community leaders. So yeah, so it sounds like you'd like to see a resurgence of these communities and organizations and, and faith groups that have a very strong value system and and a philosophical position to stand upon for like moralizing of what we should or shouldn't do of trusting yeah. each other and, and caring for each other is, do you see that as a viable possibility moving forward or how, how do you see us? What are, what are some practical things that what I, I'm stumbling over my words. Cause what I'm trying to say is not what do you wish could happen, but what do you, realistically think might play out in these circumstances? Well, I'm not naive, and I think that circumstances have become quite dark, mainly because of the nature of the monetary system and the way in which it reinforces inequality and 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 has scooped money upwards, if you like, towards the top 10%. So that doesn't make me positive. But what I, I'm, what I witnessed during the pandemic was the fact that at local community level, people are decent ultimately, and they do have values, mm-hmm. and they they did want to express those values, and they were so we have in Britain we were having a huge argument at the moment because apparently our government was partying when we were told that we weren't allowed to party and so on and so forth. So people are. Challenging. I was seeing that, yeah. The double standards of politicians, mm-hmm. and they're, they're mad as hell at those double standards because what was extraordinary during the pandemic was how good people were at obeying the law, at helping each other, at coming out and supporting their community, and at compassion. And these were qualities that we thought didn't exist, but actually in all of our communities we saw these qualities. Now, somehow or other... You know, what I think we need, and I'm afraid it comes down to political power, we need political parties to be, if you like, giving expression to this, to what, to these values and demanding and, and mobilizing political power on the back of those values. Now, we see to an extent the Green parties are saying, oh, our values are to look after nature. Um, and they are winning. Uh, support on the back of that. But we need political parties that want to promote other more, if you like, community-oriented values, decent values of honesty, of sharing, of community, of rebalancing the economy and so on. And that, so I'm convinced this is a political process. And much as, you know, we find politics distasteful, I think we have to get stuck into the political system and we have to support political parties that uphold our values. And if they don't, we've got to be in there to demand that they do. And the trouble is that most of us are finding political parties so horrible. We don't want to be part of that. But they (laughs) exercise power. And we will only change the system through the exercise of political power. So I'm saying get get political, really. Yeah, I love it. You know, and I feel like um, you're kind of speaking to me right now for sure because I I have a lot of views like everyone does, but I'm extremely turned off by 
all the political parties that I'm seeing because they're they're all becoming so radicalized and so polarized. And yeah. you're there's elements that I enjoy with both parties, but yeah. they're basically not even present right now. It's it's all this just um oh it's just it's drama and and yeah. but but I, I like I like what you say that you know whether you want to or not we should because there's probably a lot of people that feel this way that have those views and they aren't speaking out. It's what they call yeah. it silent majority or whatnot. Yeah. And you know, to kind of ground this we're we're, we're um getting close to time here and I know I said there's other elements I want to dive into like Green New Deal and stuff, but I want to ground this a little bit because you've got a new energy project you're working with and I think that'll kind of wrap this up uh, in in a really great way. So I'd love to hear a little more about it. What got you involved? First off, what is it, and why did why was it so interesting to that, that you felt like you should get involved? Well, I'm not I'm not a very commercial person. I've always worked in the voluntary sector, <laughs> but I was approached by a, a a group who want to displace the energy, the diesel fuel, and so on used in energy systems in Africa. And I'm conscious that, A, many African countries don't have access to energy at all, you know, for charging their phones, for going onto the web or for for doing things such as we have that we take for granted, but also that they use generators, for example, which are incredibly dirty, diesel-fueled and so on and so forth, and they've got to be displaced. And this organisation is planning to have a sort of decentralised system of alternative clean energy, especially for countries in Africa and I, I, South Africa, and I think that's particularly important, but also in countries like Nigeria, which have got millions and millions of people and millions and millions of diesel generators. So I've dipped my feet into the um, the, the world of commercial uh, stuff. And I mean, we're trying to raise the finance for this um, and we're trying to get others interested Um and, you know, I just find it, I, I mean, and, and I ask because I think it's really important not just for us to say, oh, we've got to have a target and get emissions down so much by mm-hmm. this date. We've also got to have a plan for how we move towards that and how we move towards that in a way that is just, that is a just transition, not just for the rich countries, but for poor countries like Africa, where they do need energy but they want clean energy and and they and so that's why I got involved because I think that's important but um we'll see if how it works out <laughs> and if I have any any yes. good so it's it's in the development stage or it's at the stage where we have the concept and now we're looking for finance for for the project it's called Ardeus to oh, god cool. a d e u s and you can find more about it on LinkedIn and, and and there's a website as well. Okay, very cool. And I think I read it was hydrogen fuel cells. Yes. Um, that... there'll be it, it it it's a little box which draws on hydrogen, mm-hmm. solar, or wind, whatever is available. Um and but it may also have to rely on what's called blue um hydrogen, i.e. there's got maybe have to be triggered by by gas in some cases, and that's problematic. We all think it's problematic, but for countries like Africa, you know, it would be a transition that uh, until mm-hmm. wind and so it's solar more practical and other than... 
clean energies come online, we're going to need a process of change. And I've been persuaded that actually we've got to think about it as a transition and not think about how we could go from here to there without any process in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. So you're not so you're not super for decentralized blockchain currencies, but you're into decentralized energy. Decentralized energy, yes, because what we've found, for example, yeah. we have a huge national, um, it's called ESCOM, energy provider, and it's been corrupted and it's very difficult to manage and so on. And it's just too big and there are huge problems with it. So there a decentralized system would be uh, far more sustainable and owned locally, owned by people. I mean, I think it's a membership-based scheme as well. So. Okay. Very cool. I'm going to take a little more look at it. Um, and nice. thanks so much for being on. Where can folks find more of your work? And and you mentioned um, Adios, but where can they find more information on that as well? So Adios is the best place to go is Adios. to look under LinkedIn. And then I have a website, annepetafor.com, but also I work with other economists on a site called primeeconomics.org, policy research in macroeconomics. And there are a lot of articles on there, which I think are of interest. Fabulous. Okay. Great. Well, I really appreciate the world tour of monetary <laughs> systems and <Right. laughs> it, it's been really great. Thank you. Well, I hope it gets you talking and others talking about stuff and looking up and reading more because once you do things begin to make more sense. So thank you for the opportunity, yes. Bradford. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. Cheers. Well, it looks like you stuck with us to the end. And thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It honestly is the best way to help us reach a broader audience. And that's the only way we can keep bringing you good content every single week. And that is our goal here. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And thank you so much. <laughs>